Hello everyone, um, and I'm afraid it's one of those episodes that we actually hate doing. It's an obituary episode, having seen this week see the passing of both David Bowie and Alan Rickman. Now, we haven't been able to get together to record a full episode on this, but both men meant quite a lot to us here at Shot Reverse Shot. So here's Ed to tell you a little about why. Didn't know what time it was, lights were low, oh, 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 I leaned back on my radio, oh, oh. Hello everyone, as Matt said, this is an obituary episode, which is something that we do every so often on this show when a figure of great note in pop culture, usually film, but not necessarily just film passes away who meant something to us on the show and also to everyone, you know, in the world. You know, in the past we've done it off for people like Philip Seymour Hoffman, James Gandolfini. And when David Bowie passed away last Sunday, the uh, and the news kind of reverberated around the world on Monday, I sent Matt a message saying that I think we need to do a whole episode about this because I don't think we can just do the kind of opening 15 minutes of the show just kind of casually mentioning that one of the most iconic figures of pop culture of the last 50 years has passed away. You know, it's not the sort of thing that you can really just kind of mention in passing. It has to kind of be the focus of something. And so we are all set to do that. And then on Thursday, Alan Rickman passed away. And suddenly it, it seemed like we had to do uh, a, a dual obit, which um, I think it may be slightly shortchanging both men because they're both worthy of episodes in their own rights in which we could delve into the various crannies of their careers and the, the the great work that they did over the course of of their lives but unfortunately things haven't worked out that way so now it's just me which uh is it always makes these things even harder just because it all goes a little bit craps last tape you know me just talking into a microphone on my own about matt to kind of give me a little bit of a break and also it doesn't help that i also have a cold but we'll kind of soldier through this and talk about david bowie and alan rickman david bowie for me, growing up, was someone akin to the Beatles in that he was someone who, whose music I knew in a general sense because it was around. There were songs, particularly stuff like Space Oddity, which I remember knowing because I, I loved the story as a kid of uh, of Major Tom going up into space, not really realising just how incredibly sad it was. I just liked the fact that there was a song about a man going up into space. And, you know, it was one of the first songs I learned on guitar. And there were just all of these various... Uh, songs in the background that I, I never yeah you know when you're a kid you hear songs and you don't really piece together that they're all by the same person uh so I didn't really get into Bowie until I was 16 and his album Heaven came out in 2002 which was nominated for a Mercury Award and was seen as kind of a maybe not a critical resurgence because he'd been doing a lot of work in the 90s that had been critically acclaimed it just wasn't really that popular and this was a return to a somewhat more accessible sound and that is very much my Bowie album if I look at his his work and think is which is the album that really kind of means the most to me that was the kind of the gateway for me that was the album I listened to after hearing that he had passed away uh, and that's the one that kind of has the most nostalgic value for me just because I associate it with a particular time in my life uh, you know uh, the last last kind of couple of years of school and but also it's it's very crucial album for me in my musical development because it came at a time when I was really trying to branch out and discover new music that I'd never heard of before and on that album was a cover of the song Cactus which is a song by the Pixies who are a band that I hadn't heard of at the time because I hadn't gotten into Nirvana who would kind of be 
uh, another gateway band for me in discovering a lot of artists. And so I looked up who wrote this song because I saw that it was one of us looking through the liner notes, of course, because the internet wasn't quite as uh, vibrant as it is nowadays. Uh, looking through the liner notes and seeing that it was not written by Bowie and looking up who exactly uh, Black Francis was and all of this sort of thing. And, uh, and, and it became a you know that led off to offshoots of discovering the pixies and lots of other bands and i think in many ways started the kind of the key factor of my personal relationship with david bowie's music which is that he was someone who recorded amazing work in a, in his own right particularly you know if you're looking at his work from in the 70s you know that whole decade is pretty much unimpeachable from the man who sold the world through to lodger that's just like 10 years of amazing albums in uh, a, a slew of different genres as he kind of evolved from a kind of folky pseudo Led Zeppelin sound through glam to uh, to soul and R&B and to eventually his kind of electronic uh, musings in Berlin with Brian Eno. And he became someone who, you know, I, I, I would investigate his albums and I always find something fun and interesting and exciting in them. But he was also someone who was kind of an amplifier for other artists. If I found out that David Bowie had collaborated with or been inspired by another artist, I thought, oh, I should check that out. You know, knowing that he produced Iggy Pop's album, The Idiot, made me think I need to buy that album. And it became one of my favourite albums of all time. So, you know, he was someone who had very good taste, I think it's fair to say. So not only was he someone who inspired a lot of really great art and who created a lot of art in his own way, but he also helped people like Iggy Pop, like uh, Nile Rodgers, who he who produced a number of albums for him in the 80s, uh, you know, and, and he was, I think for me, one of the things that I've been thinking of about his, his work in the last couple of days is, and this kind of relates to his last album, Black Star, which is also tied up to, you know, his whole, the whole circus surrounding his death, really, was that he was an artist who, you know, very early on, aged out of what is meant to be kind of the key age to be a rock star and a pop star you know he had, he was in his 20s and the 70s and then you know the 80s come along he was veering into middle age and he reinvented himself as one of the world's biggest pop stars and he never really became a legacy act unlike you know the rolling stones who basically became a legacy act once the 80s rolled around or paul mccartney who has put out lots of work in the years since you know his the Beatles and the early days of Wings, but his uh, at a certain point just you know kind of played the hits. Bowie never really did that. He always seemed to think that his contemporaries were the people who were making interesting work at the time that he was making his albums, as opposed to the people that he came up with. You know, his contemporaries were not the Who. You know, it, when he was recording Black Star, he cited Kendrick Lamar. Boards of Canada and Death Grips as the as the key influences. So he was clearly someone who was keyed into what was going on in the culture. He was someone who sought out interesting music and tried to take from what other people were doing and to inform himself. He never, even though he more or less disappeared over the last decade following his heart attack in the early 2000s and kind of receded into family life, he clearly was paying attention to what was going on and allowing that to influence the work that he was doing. And I think that that was one of the things that was really 
great and fascinating and exciting about him when he put out the next day two years ago and, and when in the lead up to the release of Black Star, it was exciting to know that Bowie was producing new work because it would not be just him rehashing old sounds of the past. He would be coming up with something new and exciting to do that would sound, that would be resolutely him. And, you know, that was the thing that ran throughout his entire career. He was always very committed to all of these different persona and different sounds that he adapted, which is, you know, kind of amazing and admirable considering how many times he shifted for that. So many of those albums sound like him, even if he was veering into drum and bass and industrial, which maybe not his strongest work, uh, Earthling, but you know, it's undeniably a David Bowie album, even if it sounds uh, kind of embarrassing now. But that has less to do with it being a Bowie album than it being a drum and bass album. And also, I think, for for me, Bowie was kind of an ideal artist. He was someone who was very good at recording kind of psych folk, kind of kinksy character sketches in his early days. And he kind of evolved from that into doing the Led zeppelin kind of noodling and then glam. And... I think he probably could have kept doing that for years. You know, he, he for several years in the early 70s, he kind of stuck into one particular groove, but it never seemed to be enough to be very good at something. He always wanted to find something new to do. He always wanted to try something new and ambitious. He wanted to make a, you know, a concept album based about 1984, or he wanted to uh, try acting and he wanted to he always followed his muse to do all of these different things and i think the diversity of his career which includes the aforementioned dabblings in industrial and electronica and also recording with bing crosby uh, i think speaks to that he was someone who genuinely seemed to enjoy pushing himself into doing things that were new and different for him and i feel that while a lot of artists who do amazing work, like, you know, Morrissey is one of my favourite singers and, and lyricists, but, you know, he has he found a groove very early on and he has never really moved from it, particularly once the Smiths broke up and he's kind of just been doing overly verbal rockabilly since then. He doesn't really seem to be pushing himself very much, and even though he's very good at what he does, he maybe his muse is, has been fairly stable or, or has been unchaste. Whereas I think that Bowie was always trying to push himself into new areas and to try things. And some of those things were, were wildly unsuccessful. A lot of the music he did in the late 80s is terrible, but uh, for, for, for most of the time it worked surprisingly well. And even when it didn't work, you got the sense that he was at least throwing himself into it. He wasn't doing things by half. Uh, and I think that musically and also in terms of cinema you could see that even though he maybe wasn't the greatest actor in the world he was a he was a good actor and he had a presence if you cast david bowie you were going to get something unique you know he didn't have he wasn't bland you know if he was doing something like the man who felt worth he was very good at portraying this alien and unnerving figure if he was doing labyrinth he could be huge and campy uh if he was doing merry christmas Mr. Lawrence, which is probably his best performance, if not necessarily the best film he was involved with. It's kind of a toss-up between that and and The Man Who Fell to Earth. He could be very stoic and kind of embody the best of Britishness. You know, he, he was someone who had range, but also a distinct kind of uh, presence in films. And I think that is something that uh, is kind of underrated. 
he wouldn't be considered kind of a classic movie star, but he was definitely a character actor who, when he showed up in things like The Prestige, made a huge impression just by his presence. It's something that is kind of hard to it is kind of hard to gauge because it was such a limited filmography, especially because if you look at his IMDb credits, most of it is listed as playing himself in things like Zoolander, uh, where he was obviously he was great, you know, great in Zoolander being the most David Bowie David Bowie has ever been. And the thing about his death that I think has really become apparent in the days since it happened, and particularly, and this all circles back to Black Star, is that he was able to come up with his own epitaph and an epitaph to his career, an ending to his career, which is something that I don't think a lot of artists do. After I listened to Black Star for the first time, which I listened to the day he died, having thought oh there's a new Bowie album on I'll listen to it at the weekend when I can uh when I can kind of relax and kind of soak it in it uh, you know that didn't happen <laughs> he, his uh body failing kind of made me rethink that plan uh, after I listened to it the first time I then queued up as I do often these days the Hamilton soundtrack and listened to the song one last time which for people who don't know is a song in which George Washington talks to his Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton and asks him to help pen his farewell address, which is one of the most significant documents in American history, presidential history. And the whole point of the song is about him, them trying to come up with the best way for someone to say goodbye. And the idea of George Washington coming up with a speech that would act as a stopgap to his public career. And listening to that song really kind of put Black Star into perspective as, as this very rare thing where Bowie knew that he was dying, he knew the end was coming, and so he created this work of art that acts as its own as, as its own individual thing, but also as a clear response to the fact that he is going to die, and a way for the fans to, kind of, to give something to the fans to let them know that this is the end. And I think you can see that in the lyrics of something like Lazarus, which obviously starts with the words, look at me, I'm up in heaven. I've got scars no one can see, which is about as blatant. And obviously the title Black Star, which supposedly refers to a particular kind of lesion that comes from cancer. You know, he was leaving all of the clues there. <laughs> and if you watch the Lazarus video, which ends with him kind of slowly retreating into a cupboard, you know, in, in much in the way that someone may be lowered into a grave, he wasn't exactly, he, no one can say that he didn't leave us some clues. And I think that it's so, such a, a rare thing for an artist to actually leave us with something that feels definite and finite, as if they've looked at their body of work and said, this is how I want to finish it. And I feel like that in some ways, is, is quite comforting, even though it comes wrapped in the form of a very difficult and aggressive and hard to kind of take uh, experimental jazz album. But, you know, that is that is typically David Bowie thing, that he turned his death into an, another piece of performance art to end his career, and he also did it around an album that is willfully kind of strange and pushes people's perceptions and also it's kind of amazing that that is the album that was his first that will be his first ever u.s number one <laughs> you know so 
there, even though it's obviously incredibly sad that he has passed away and lost someone who I think was a kind of a font of creativity. It feels like he had the most David Bowie death that he could have imagined. Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. Rumor has it Arafat buys his death. In contrast to that, Alan Rickman's death is in some ways a lot sadder because we don't get that sense of finality. In both cases, both men died at the age of 69. Both men had kept their illness pretty secret and unknown to the world. So it was doubly shocking to A, find out that they were ill and then to hear that they were dead, which is kind of always a lot of information to take in one go. Uh, but, you know, obviously he was somewhat... And, and, and the difference, I think, also is that Bowie was someone who had retreated from the public eye a fair bit. So the sense that he may be ill wasn't necessarily that surprising as awful as it is to say he either may be a sense that oh he's not around because there's health issues which i think was was something that was ruined for a long time before the next day came out the sense that maybe he's not recording stuff because he's not well and he can't do anything Uh, whereas alan rickman was constantly working he was even just last year he directed a film and he was he was acting in things all the time and he was, a, you know, he was a character actor. He was always doing things. And so he, there was kind of a, a, maybe a great sense of vitality to him. The fact that he was always in, there was always going to be a new Alan Rickman film coming out. You know, he's got at least two more, I think, or at least one more. Due to come out, the uh, sequel to Alice in Wonderland, which is maybe not the best final statement for an artist to leave. But at the same time, I think is is in some ways fitting because he was someone who like the best character actors, just followed the work and tried to do his best, even if the material wasn't there. Similar to a James Gandolfini or a Philip Seymour Hoffman, Alan Rickman was someone who, if you saw him in a film, you could guarantee that at least something interesting was going to happen. It wasn't necessarily that he was always going to be good, but he at least would be the most interesting thing in the movie. And I think that was true in his first big screen appearance, which was as Hans Gruber in Die Hard, which is amazing if you think about it, that that was his start, that he started with one of the most iconic villains of action cinema, of, of 80s cinema, as in a role that I think defined the kind of Euro trash terrorists of the 90s. Well, there's quite a lot of them in action movies, particularly American action movies, where all the villains were played by Brits, which was something that I think had always been the case. But now, post Hans Gruber, I think there was a move towards casting classically trained British actors to bring a certain degree of wit and uh, suaveness to the role, which is something that I feel like he really brought to Hans Gruber. And he also, any role he did i think he tried to bring a certain degree of complexity to it i think you can see in that you can see it in his performance as severus snape which i think is probably it's arguably his most iconic role because he played him so many times over the course of a decade in films that were hugely successful and which were seen by huge audiences worldwide you know and particularly young audiences i think there is kind of a generational shift in that if you were 
sort of 20 or 30 when uh, when Die Hard came out or if you were a teenager growing up in the 90s who watched Die Hard when you were far too young then he was probably Hans Gruber or maybe he was the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves not Men in Tights as I wanted to say then you probably uh, then you then that's what you thought of him because that was probably your the first thing you saw him in and the first thing that kind of made a big impression, or maybe in Sense and Sensibility, which I think is another kind of big one for him from that time period. And if you were kind of a child in the early 2000s, you probably know him as Severus Snape. And I think that it, that role, because he played it for so long, he was able to play notes of, you know, initially making him very sinister, because obviously he's meant to be kind of a red herring villain early on in the series. And then as he goes along, playing notes of regret and sadness and loneliness which are all kind of things that were on the page from the book but really only revealed in the final harry potter book and he had to kind of slowly craft those into the characters over the course of the films because obviously you couldn't just have someone describe all of the things that he had done so i feel like that was one of the great things about his performance in that film was he was able to suggest a lot about this character even though, you know, the truth about him wouldn't be revealed until well into the eighth film in a series that ran for 10 years. And even in films that weren't kind of huge blockbusters or weren't particularly good, such as uh, Matt's Betnoir, Love Actually, he was often the best thing in them. You know, I, I'm most of the stories in Love Actually don't work for me on kind of comedy or emotion level. I find them all very sappy and boring and not particularly good, but the story between him and Emma Thompson, who was his on-screen kind of sparring partner in a bunch of films over the course of the last 20 years, is the most affecting, and I think they both brought a lot to it, but I think he did a very good job of juggling this character who is sort of toying with the idea of cheating on his wife, but not maybe it doesn't have the, the ability to go through with it, but does take the steps along that way. And I think that he does a lot to make that character both repellent and sympathetic at the same time, which is a tough thing to do, but I think it's a testament to what a great actor he was that he was able to kind of do that and to make this particular vignette stand out as the one kind of emotionally interesting and resonant scene in a, a, a film that is kind of overloaded with kind of mawkish sentimentality. And I think that his... You know, when you talk about Alan Rickman, I think it's it's impossible not to talk about how great his voice was. And I think that was a big part of it. He had such a great sonorous voice and part of what made his performances so great is even if the material wasn't very good or even if the kind of the overall film was disappointing, you could you at least knew that he was probably going to come up with some interesting ways of saying words. You know, he would find some kind of way of there's some turn of phrase that would kind of be very, very delightful. I think you can hear that a lot in Die Hard. I think you can see that in in Robin Hood, which is not a, for me, not a particularly good film, but he every second he is on screen is fantastic. I think the way he screams Cancel Christmas is just an utter delight and one of the most amazing and wonderful bits of hamming it up ever. I think that that film would be uh, pretty much unwatchable if he wasn't there to liven it up uh, every so often. And... Like Bowie, I think one of the key things about him was his commitment. Like I say, he would throw himself into most roles, even the roles that weren't very good. And if you look at his IMDb, there's a lot of shit on there, particularly 
over the last kind of five or six years there have, haven't been since the potter films ended he hasn't really had that many really good juicy roles but even when he was cast as like reagan in lee daniels the butler he would kind of throw himself into it even if that meant deciding that ronald reagan just sounded like alan rickman <laughs> which is one of the kind of the fun things about that performance in that he is trying very hard to embody a character whilst completely ignoring the need to do his voice because i think it's more fun to imagine ronald reagan talking like alan rickman and that sense of committing to a part of throwing of kind of throwing yourself into something and giving it your all i think is maybe his most admirable quality i think is the the, the thing that separates the great character actors from the kind of just your, your average workaday guys is that if you look at the material and you think i i need to do something with this i need to make this good i need to make this as good as i can make it even if it's terrible writing i can at least make the delivery good or i can do something with my physicality that will kind of at least add some moment of interest or grace to what could be an otherwise not particularly graceful production and that's i think the thing that i will probably miss most about alan rickman is that there will now be you know a hundred or something films that would have been more interesting for having him in them that now won't be they may be good in their own right but i think that if if he had lived another 10 15 years or so he could have done he could have been the sort of older character actor who just shows up and you know like a, a wilford brimley type who just shows up for one scene at the end of uh, absence of malice just to kind of knock everyone down i think that that if if he had lived he probably would have done that dozens of times over he would have been someone who showed up did a fantastic job and made mediocre or terrible films briefly wonderful for a few minutes or would have elevated great material yeah so and alan rickman and david bowie both tremendous artists to both people who meant an awful lot to me growing up because they were in they created art that meant a lot to me when i was younger and, and I, their art kind of grew with me either because they would do putting out more stuff or because i was digging into their back catalogue and finding out that there was a lot of stuff in there to love and anytime artists like these two men die i think the only thing that can be done is to listen to or watch their work and you know i think in in that instance if i could recommend their their works of theirs that i particularly love both of which i'll, I'll go for films because we are nominally a film podcast uh, i would i would recommend the aforementioned merry christmas mr lawrence with david bowie and takeshi kitano which is a, a beautiful film it has a, a wonderful score uh, which is about you know it's, it's a tough film because it's about uh, japanese internment camps but it is it is an absolutely beautiful and wonderful piece of cinema and for alan rickman i will recommend a, a slightly more obscure work of his but one that is actually readily available on youtube because i think you know everyone's watched die hard and the harry potter films you know and galaxy quest are oh, galaxy quest that is a wonderful film with a great comic performance from him dripping with disdain but also kind of nobility towards the end but uh, i recommend a film of his called play which was a short film directed by anthony Minghella, an adaptation of the play of the same name by samuel beckett which is a uh, which co-stars Kristen scott thomas and julia stevenson it is a very ext- 
strange experimental one act in which these three people who are dead and recommend represented in the film as severed heads sitting atop urns describe the events leading up to their deaths but they do so in a way that eschews all punctuation so they talk like this and they are talking like this all the time and they don't say anything and there's nothing and blah, 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 blah. so it's constant 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 talking and it is a kind of masterclass in how to take an idea that is incredibly esoteric and difficult and you know something of a marathon for an actor because i think if they perform if you perform the play twice you perform it once in its entirety and then you perform it again as the second act so then people have chance to kind of pick up on the details that they will have missed the first time because people have delivered 10,000 words in five minutes and I think it is a really kind of intriguing attempt to take this experimental piece of theatre and convert it to cinema and Alan Rickman in it is incredible he does an amazing job with this very difficult material I think it is it was one of the films that I first saw that really made me consider him as not being just this guy that was really fun in movies I liked, but like a genuinely amazing actor. Uh, so those are my recommendations for their work. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and which is available from Criterion. I think it's on their Hulu page if you're in America or have access to American programs. And Play, which is on YouTube. Once again, I would just like to apologise that we weren't able to do full episode this week it was uh, out of our hands but if you would like to send any complaints please send them to virgin atlantic at manchester airport for delaying my parents flight meaning that i missed our scheduled recording time when i went to pick them up so all complaints to them but yes david bowie alan rickman two of the all-time greats will be very sadly missed <laughs>